Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Ashley Fedick. Ashley is a registered psychologist that specializes in working with children and families, both in schools and private practice. She specializes in assessment, counseling, and consultation services, and is currently a member of the College of Alberta Psychologists, Psychologists Association of Alberta, and the National Association of School Psychologists. Ashley strongly believes that collaborative approach will help create the most successful opportunity for each child. In addition to her professional life, Ashley is passionate about traveling and spending time with her two boys. In today's episode, we tackle the topic of ADHD with its increasing prevalence here in the U.S. and why that might be, and the approach to treating it, along with much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So as we were mentioning before we jumped on here, we have a... Well, we both agree that it's more or less a controversial topic these days, but we love covering those here. So (laughs) today we are going to be talking about ADHD. And I would love, I think, to start off just by having you give us like a, a brief definition of what exactly it is and how prevalent it has become within your practice. Okay, so ADHD is a neurological disorder. It's the most common in children of any of the mental disorders. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is the the long term for that. Some people still call it ADD, but the term has been replaced with ADHD. And there are actually three different types of it. So there's ADHD inattentive type, ADHD hyperactive, and then ADHD combined, which is a combination of inattentive and hyperactive. So I think the diagnosis is a lot more complicated than we just hear when we say ADHD. But as far as prevalence goes, when I was kind of looking to some statistics for it, it did show that in 1997, about 5.5% of kids were diagnosed with it, then jumped up to 9.9% in 2018. And now they're saying it's about one in four, which is a really high Mm, rate, right? When we, when we think about it. So my interest in this topic came when I was in grad school I had saved up all of my money for these Prada sunglasses, and I 
had them for two days before I had lost them. So I was telling my mom and she's like, you know, when I'm studying about ADHD, look at all of the symptoms of it. And then when I did that, I'm like, wow, I meet each of these criteria. So I went to the doctor at the student center and told her like, this is what I'm dealing with. And then I got the diagnosis right there and then was given a prescription for stimulant med- medication. So I tried it because I was <laughs> 22 at the time or whatever. And and it wasn't for me, but this it just became a topic of interest for me because it was so easily diagnosed for myself. And then I was just given medication there. So I've spent a lot of time working, researching ADHD. Yeah. I kind of went off on <laughs> a personal tangent. No, there, that's, that's how. No, that's yeah. great. That's great. And I, as I had mentioned in like right before we we're chatting here, I recently read the book Stolen Focus, and there's a whole chapter in there that addresses the rise of ADHD and like how we're responding to it. You know, we said this is more or less like a controversial topic, and I just wanted to kind of explain why. And so I'm just going to briefly read. I just found the paragraph that just kind of like summarizes what it can be controversial. So he writes, as all this has exploded, a polarized argument has broken out over it. On one side, there are people saying ADHD is a disorder caused overwhelmingly by something going wrong within the individual's genes and brain, and that very large numbers of children and adults should be taking stimulants to treat it. This side has largely prevailed in the US, as we have kind of discussed that like the prescription use here is so much more substantial than anywhere else in the world when it comes to ADHD. On the other side, there are people saying that attention problems are real and painful, but is incorrect and harmful to see them as a biological disorder that requires the mass prescription of drugs, and we should be offering different forms of help. This side has largely prevailed in places like Finland. So then, you know, this whole chapter kind of goes on and on about, you know, like how we're treating it here compared to other parts in the world. And it's just, it's like really fascinating. Yeah, I love that. I, yeah. that's, and that's a big part of what I did want to talk about today. And if you look at any of the research, they even call ADHD like United States diagnosis, like it because it's so prevalent in North America, I guess, but other countries aren't seeing what we're experiencing here and obviously dealing with it differently. And that is one thing, like our lifestyles, how things have changed. And unfortunately, I think over the last two years with COVID, we're going to see an even bigger increase in ADHD because we've been learning on screens. Kids, they've been doing online learning. A lot of kids then are having learning disabilities, which often show up as ADHD. And that's the hard part is it can be misdiagnosed for many different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the United States, why do you think, I mean, obviously, you know, you said the rise with screens during COVID and things like that. What other things do you think have kind of led to this increase of, of just using the diagnosis in general? So I just want to preface that I think when we're talking about all of this, we're talking about the more mild diagnosis in cases of ADHD, not trying to be super controversial, but I do when I talk about like our lifestyles, if we think about what we're doing here, a really great book that I've read recently just from my own parenting needs was Simplified Parenting. I don't know if you've read that one. So it just talks about how from birth, what our lifestyle promotes for our kids. So when our kids are born, we're busy as adults. (laughs) We have many different things going on and we give our kids the toys that flash and uh, make music and, you know, have all these things going on. But maybe we don't even give them one. We give them like five. So hopefully it'll keep their attention long enough while we can do our podcast or our Zoom meeting. And what happens is that none of them keep their attention, right? Because 
they're all too busy. And what research shows is that the more busy a toy is, the less it keeps their attention. So that's like, say, with like a two or a three-year-old. And then from there, we go to wait in a line and our kids can't wait in line. So we give them a phone or an iPad. We're not teaching them to have that, to be able to wait. Right. And then we're starting school earlier. We start school and we put the kids in and they're full day classes. So if we look at like child development experts say a reasonable attention span is two to three minutes per year of a child's age. So a typical amount of time that they can focus. So say for a 12 year old is 36 minutes. How long of a class are our kids sitting through without a break? Or I know where I live, a lot of programs have cut physical education or recess because they're trying to promote more academic classes. But so all these lifestyle changes, it's like we're not allowing physical activity or brain breaks or the teaching of social skills, all of the things that we need to not have an increase in what would look like ADHD. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because then you look at, I mean, just like a simple example, like, obviously, a lot of these European countries, especially Finland, they really focus on play centered learning. And so they're giving recess so much more than we do here in the US. And you have to wonder, like, is that why we are having, you know, this huge increase in this diagnosis, because our kids are being required to sit down for long periods of time that their brains have never been wired for. And then we're like, oh, well, they're ADHD because they can't sit still. And it's like, well, but the kid is, you know, they're not supposed to be able to sit for, you know, four classes in a row, all 30 minutes long without a break to like run around and be a kid. So it just makes you think, yeah, like, children who are younger in their class, so the ones youngest in their class are more likely to be diagnosed or misdiagnosed because they would attribute it to ADHD when really it would be maybe immaturity or resulting behavioral causes because of like their age compared to their peers more so than a a true diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then obviously we also have an increased awareness about the symptoms. ADHD is talked about everywhere. And as we said, it's a controversial topic, but the more we talk about it, the more parents hear, oh, so for like the inattentive type, if you have trouble holding attention to play, like I just said, we're giving our kids all these objects (laughs) to play with or an iPad, which easily can obviously keep their attention. But if we then make them sit there and do their homework and they're not able to, it's like, oh, I heard about that, you know, ADHD. I think if we should go talk to someone about that. And then when you go to a professional, that's a whole <laughs> whole other topic about how we are diagnosing it. Because like I said, from my example, it can be very quick and, and not any kind of research-based rating scales or valid uh, diagnostic tools being used. So Yeah. Yeah. And when you mentioned screens earlier, it's, it's, it's crazy because I feel like as adults, like so many of us almost suffer from, you know, I wouldn't define it as ADHD, but I think when you look up the symptoms, you'd be like, oh, that's me because our, our brains are so trained now, especially, I think a good example is probably TikTok. I've I've never gone down the TikTok route. I just, I don't know why I just, I don't know why I just never did it. And 
It's because these these clips are so short. They're they're meant to grab your attention in a very short amount of time and they switch around so quickly, your brain kind of adapts to like this, oh, like really exciting new topic, new, you know, new video every 45, 60 seconds and it's like your brain gets used to that and then you wonder why you can't at the end of the day read a book. Like you're, you're trying to read a book. I have so many friends that are like, I, I can't read anymore because the second I try to sit down, it's like, I can't, I can't get into a book. My, my brain, every couple of minutes just goes somewhere else. And it's because we've kind of like trained our brains with all the technology these days. It's just like meant to be faster paced and it's really, really hard for us all to concentrate. So obviously the same thing will happen, you know, for our children as well. If you kind of think about how your own brain works. I mean, I know before I deleted social media, the uh, it took me months to kind of get to this place now where I'm reading all the time, like, and I'm able to read very fast like I used to, but it was very hard for a couple of months because my brain was just so used to like fast paced content that was energy packed. And, you know, sitting down and leisurely reading a book was the complete opposite of that, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And I think that that's an interesting point making around like whether ADHD is overdiagnosed or not, or However, we want to, like, I strongly believe it is, and research has shown that as well. Maybe it's around changing our mindset around how we do things. And that's a whole, I don't know, it's a massive topic to think about. But if we think about education, and like we were saying, having the kids sitting for so long, and then or or parenting at home, it's hard to make all those changes, right? Like, it's hard to sit down and think through like, okay, I'm not going to allow screens in my home or anything that maybe is impacting negatively a child's behavior, whether it's ADHD or not, requires a lot of work to change things. So, yeah. And I I think that, I don't know, I feel like I'm jumping around, but for ADHD, the go-to treatment is stimulant medication. And stimulant medication, I mean, is a piece of the puzzle, but it shouldn't be what we jump to. We need to focus on strategies and changing the environment, therapy, behavioral interventions, any kind of intervention that helps teach them the skills instead of just jumping on the medication train. Yeah. And, and I mean, those medications are addictive. There's, they don't come without a small price, you know? So, and it's something that, you know, you can get addicted to and then, and and then be on it for the rest of your life. I mean, to be able to kind of introduce like, you know, like you said, like behavioral techniques and, and things that might be able to fix the problem without getting on a medication like that, I would, I would assume would be, you know, the ultimate goal. I almost would compare it to having somebody with anxiety and, you know, saying here, we're going to prescribe you a, a benzo, which is, you know, a medication that acts a lot like having a glass or two of wine and is extremely addictive and saying, here, take this every time you feel anxious, instead of saying, here, I want to give you the coping tools that will help you through anytime you're feeling anxious. Let's try these first, or, you know, let's try X, Y, and Z first before going to a medication that's so powerful like that, you know, especially, especially in a child. I would love to, to ask you, like, Two questions, kind of a two-part question. So the first would be, as a parent who's listening today, what am I looking for in my child that would make me concerned that they may have ADHD and that I should seek some support or help? And then the second part to that question would be, oh my gosh, what was it? Oh no, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just start there. And then, well, I'm sure I'll remember as you're answering that. 
Sure. So the way, like, so as a psychologist, the way that we diagnose ADHD is by the DSM-5, which gives different criteria for each of those three different types of ADHD that I explained. So for the inattentive presentation, they have to have six or more symptoms from a list. And so maybe I'll just like give a few that maybe, uh, so fails to give close attention to detail, makes careless mistakes, doesn't seem to listen when spoken to, doesn't follow through on instructions, often dislikes or is reluctant to do a task that requires a mental effort or is easily distractive or forgetful in daily activities. So for the inattentive type, that one is a little bit more difficult to diagnose because if you look at that criteria and as for myself as a parent, I it's mean, like that, literally every child that's ever. my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say like, yeah, I'm pretty sure all of them and myself too. Fall like, <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. So yeah. I guess that's, that's really, I mean, I feel like that's just kids, right? Their brains are like, especially yeah. when they're young, that's, they they're they don't want to be distracted out of like whatever they're doing. So of course they're gonna be inattentive when they want to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I have two boys. So that like I said, I mean I can die they're both diagnosed <laughs> right there. Yeah. But no, like joking aside, they're not they're not really diagnosed, but that presents as them, right? So and and these symptoms have to be present for at least six months. So we're there's so many things that can look like ADHD. You kind of touched on anxiety, but people with anxiety that often gets diagnosed for ADHD or sorry, ADHD, because they're often like distracted or feeling nervous or worried about something that interferes with their learning process or how they attend to tasks. Same with, but if we think of this, so is like poor sleep or poor nutrition, right? So like my four-year-old is the worst sleeper. So all of these things, like even more so would be, but I know that it's due to his, his sleep and and even grief or stress, learning disabilities, depression, all of that can look like those characteristics we just talked about. So that is the hardest part about the misdiagnosis of ADHD. That's why when they say it has to be present at least six months, we want to make sure it's over a longer period of time. So that's the inattentive type. For the hyperactivity impulsivity type, There, I would say, I guess it's a little easier to see that side of things. So six symptoms often squirms in seats, leaves situations when they're required to be seated, runs, climbs when not appropriate, unable to play quietly, on the go or driven by a motor, talks excessively, blurts out answers before being completed. That's also children too, right? Like we can we can say, I don't know, my boys run and climb when they're not supposed to <laughs> all the time. But so that's the diagnosis for hyperactivity, impulsivity, six of those. And then also over a six-month span, all of these different characteristics are supposed to be present before the age of 12. So somebody had wrote me recently and said, you know, a lot of my friends in their 30s are being diagnosed now. And it seems to be like kind of a cool thing <laughs> to do or like the, the new thing. And I was thinking about it and I was like, I mean, if that's great if they're just finding out and this is something that's really helpful for them. But we that is part of the diagnosis of the DSM-5. These characteristics do have to be in place before age 12. So as long as we're, we're looking back and making sure that, you know, the amount of times I look at my phone during the day, I could probably get diagnosed <laughs> alone by my inattentiveness. But yeah, so those are, those are the main characteristics of what you would be looking for in a child that has ADHD. And like I said, but some of those hyperactivity ones too, it's like, are we teaching social skills in school? Are we teaching social emotional learning? Maybe we need to 
back off and take half an hour off math or language arts or English and teach those skills to help them be able to manage in some of those situations. So when I think of ADHD as a whole and changing the environment, changing the way we think about it is kind of more so where I go to with it. I think I can say that because I work in a specialized school where we start the day with spark. So the kids get up and do physical activity for the first half an hour of the day. But our kids here, 75% have ADHD. So anyways, (laughs) sorry, I went on a random tangent. You asked how parents know and I went off on all these different things. So no, that's great. No, it's great. Just to kind of, I, I like when you touched on, you were, you know, talking about anxiety and stress and all of that. And I had also read in that book I was mentioning earlier that when you read it, you're like, oh, of course that makes sense. But you know, if you have really stressed out parents that aren't able to like soothe themselves and you're a child who is in need of soothing for whatever reason, you know, say you're having a certain circumstance at school that's stressing you out or you hurt yourself or whatever it might be, but to no fault of their own, you know, the parents that are incredibly stressed out just for whatever reasons, I mean, COVID in general that had, you know, so many implications on people's, the way that they work and things like that is, is stress enough. And they aren't able to give their kids the tools to kind of, you know, have that soothing. And then they, age 5, 10, 15 years, and they realize that as a teen or as an adult, that they don't have those tools because their parents weren't able to give them those tools because they weren't able to use them themselves because, you know, a stressful situation. So you think of people that are in severe poverty that are incredibly stressed. And I don't know if you know, if there's like a, a higher incidence of diagnosed ADHD with lower income or or anything like that. But I would imagine, you know, I don't know if I looked it up that it would be only because of like the increased stress. I'm not really sure. They would say like, if you look at research, it just says there isn't a distinguished like between socioeconomic status. But when you think through it and kind of like what you're saying, I understand for sure, or even access to to medical professionals right. or treatment or right. any of that kind of thing. I have a hard time thinking it wouldn't be, but right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically I was just saying, you know, like if you try to fix that and like you said, like fix that environment, you know, a lot of the times whatever was causing that child to fall under that definition of ADHD, like slowly falls away because you're fixing that environment. Would you say that environment, like the the child's environment plays a huge role in the diagnosis? So myself, I would say, I would say that. Um, (laughs) This is the controversial. Yes. Well, ADHD is a biological and neurological disorder, right? And we know that it's genetic. If you, if we were able to look at the, like do a brain scan, a PET scan for each child that we were diagnosing, we would see differences and like, there'd be like cortical thinning in the frontal region, things like that. So we would know for sure, right? There's no blood test. There's no, we can't do a scan. So So I don't want to like minimize that side of things. I do think whether there is ADHD true diagnosis or not, the environment impacts whether you have the official diagnosis. So I do think that that's a huge factor in it. I think of how quickly our stats have increased in the diagnosis and how our lifestyles have changed. Even when the first stat I said was 1997, if we think back to then... I mean, cell phones were just, I, I can't even remember, but cell phones were just a thing, you know, but things have 
like increased so rapidly in our lives of distractions and how busy our lives are as parents and then how that makes us focus on our, our parent our own children. So yes, I do think environment is a huge part of it for sure. Now, when it comes to treatment, I know obviously every patient is going to be different, but say you have a child that you think has ADHD and you're going through possible treatment options for them. Do you have like a a tip, like algorithm that you'll follow where it's like, okay, try this, try this, try this. And then if all else fails, you know, introduce medication or like what's your personal? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I I think just jumping back one point is just basically the assessment of ADHD because for myself, I'm very thorough because I don't like to easily give the diagnosis out. It differs, right, from a medical professional or a pediatrician to a psychologist, psychiatrist, how things are done a little bit differently. And so I kind of talked about it before, but just making sure like using scientifically validated like rating scales, I do multiple ones just to make sure that you know, we're being consistent, but then also across environments, because that's really important. So if, if a parent comes and says like, I'm struggling with my child, they're not able to regulate their emotions at home. These are the things. And we say, okay, yeah, uh, ADHD and prescribe them stimulant medication. We aren't looking at other environments where they may be functioning quite well. So we always look at home and school or home, school and extracurricular activities and have multiple people in on those rating scales to make sure we are consistent with not just a parent who may be struggling with parenting and their own things going on and behavior issues at home. And then the, the teacher may send back the rating scale and everything's average, right? So then it's more so a home issue than, than ADHD. So I just want to jump back to the, the diagnosis of it and how we test for it because that's really important as well. And now I now I now I went off and totally forgot what your Oh, you know, so your, when you have a patient that you officially oh, diagnose, right. yeah, yeah. Okay. where do you go from there? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so so once um it comes back that it's in multiple environments, then I usually will put together some kind of plan for them to try as far as maybe parent skill training, skill building for the child. A large part of ADHD is executive functioning, right? So being able to help them with planning and organizing tasks, being able to give them brain breaks or sustain their mental effort for a longer amount of time, just building it up. That's kind of what I focus on are those interventions to help build those skills or strategies to move forward. Obviously in schools, we want to like talk about some accommodations. So maybe they're given extra breaks or extra time if they need it on tasks and those kinds of things. But I never jump right to medication. And as a psychologist, I can't prescribe So I can always recommend to the doctor or pediatrician or psychiatrist, but that's not, that's not where my go-to. So there are a lot of different interventions and strategies and supports that I think if this was my child, I would want them to learn those skills to be able to move forward and have those in like knowing those in their life instead of just relying on the medication. Because at some point I would hope the medication would be you would wean off or stop taking it. And then what skills do we have? Do we know at that point what what to focus on or what we need to to try and improve on? So that's always my go-to first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So can you touch on a little bit 
what support do we have available for families that are trying to find out more information about ADHD? So your go-to would maybe like your your family doctor or pediatrician would be like your first step if you were thinking of needing some support as far as like the diagnosis goes for your child. There's a lot of different now I think of it. I didn't send you send you my links that and maybe I can do that here after. So so that you can share those. But there's a lot of information obviously we want to get the right information, but available on on the internet. So that's why the links would be important. But just to go through and and see kind of what this sounds like, you know how you can jump on the internet and find ADHD tests or something like that. I promise you those aren't valid. So don't jump to those and start using them and trying to, to diagnose your family members. But yeah, like even when I think about, and maybe my thinking about this is a little bit different, but I have a son who's very busy and like I said, could meet all of that criteria. And for me as a parent, I think, what are the pros and cons to having him diagnosed? So maybe he is he could fit that criteria and get the diagnosis. But I, at this point, I know I wouldn't use the stimulant medication for him. So does it benefit him to have that diagnosis? For me, no, it doesn't because it goes on his school file. And then I don't know, does that matter? I don't know. But what things can I help him learn or talk with his teacher about to try in the classroom to change things a little bit? It's kind of my approach to it, I guess. But I know that, like I said, there are more extreme cases and I don't want to minimize that at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What is the like average age of, of receiving a diagnosis of ADHD when it comes to kids? Do you know? So the average age I would think would be so now I'm I'm just going off of my own practice. I don't know statistically. I would think around so third grade to fourth grade is a big jump. And so that's a huge time where learning disabilities are diagnosed. And so I would think that that's an increase there for sure. And then 12, I would think is a, a big increase as well, like middle school. Yeah, that's where I would see it the, the most. Okay. For sure. All right. So I have questions from my community for you. Unless you have anything else you wanted to add to like the first part of this conversation, we can dive into those. I feel like I could talk about this. I know. I know. I know. But each question has yeah. its own little like, you know, half hour tangent. It's like hard to yeah, kind of right. stay on. I know. Okay. So let's, I'm going to pull them up here. So there okay. are quite a few and some of these things we kind of already talked to talked about. So let's see. Anything we can do if we suspect our four-year-old has ADHD or is this too young to be suspecting it? Do you have any tips? Oh gosh, every question is controversial in itself. I personally don't diagnose before age seven because I do feel like a lot of it can be different kinds of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, giving just some parenting support. You know, kids are challenging. <laughs> like yeah. So they can. I have seen it diagnosed. I, I know that happens quite often. I personally think that it is too young. If I went through those characteristics that are in the DSM-5, I feel like every four-year-old could could meet with those, like not waiting their turn, interrupting you, right? And those are the big signs of ADHD. So emotional regulation is a huge part of ADHD as well. So for kids not being able to regulate their emotions, but a four-year-old, yeah, it's so hard for them. So it would be it would be hard for me to diagnose yeah. that early. You know, it's funny because like a lot of these questions, I would say, 
I would say like 25% of these questions is like, is it really ADHD or is it just overstimulation? When is it ADHD and when is it a high energy child? Is impulse control, oh, that's actually not one. What level of inattention is normal for most children? So a lot of these are, I do think that there's a lot of parents that are just like, is it just my kid or are they, and like you said, what was it again? You said for every year right. or whatever. Yeah. yeah whatever mm-hmm. year of age they are, it's two to three minutes. Two to three it? minutes yeah, two for to the child's minutes. age. So think about that for a four-year-old. We're talking yes. about eight minutes. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. It's wild. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, on some days my four-year-old could color for, yeah, like sustaining to a task, right? Yeah. So he would color for two minutes and I'm not going to jump and be like, oh my gosh. But I mean, other days he can do longer, but I think that it's just, I don't know. The hard part is I don't want to minimize anything, but what are you struggling with? What can you get help with? What What is the benefit to having that diagnosis? Because I don't know, every every place is so different. So sometimes having the diagnosis really gets that child a lot of support that they need. And, and then that is important, right? But yeah, I would have a hard time with a, a four-year-old being diagnosed for sure. What is the difference between sensory seeking and ADHD? Does it yeah, have similar so behaviors? A hundred percent. And they get misdiagnosed as like... Any kind of sensory processing or sensory issue often gets diagnosed as ADHD Mm. because they often overlap. So sensory, when we think of sensory, right, like loud noises, difficult with different fabrics. So sometimes like they can only wear sweatpants. They can't wear socks, those kinds of sensory issues. But they do present often as kids with ADHD. So they, they intertwine a lot and do get misdiagnosed for one another for sure. Yeah. Is there an age where you kind of can tell like, oh, it might be more one compared to the other or? I mean, as the kids get older, obviously you're, you're able to tell more about like they're able to help express that as well. Cause I know I get referred a lot of kids that do have those issues with like, oh, they won't wear socks or they won't ever put on, they have to have like five pairs of the same pants cause they don't like the feel of other ones. I feel as they get a bit older, that, that that does change. But now I lost my train of thought. But it's more so the issues that they're presenting with than, than like a certain time. I would think that it just all of a sudden appears differently. Do you know what I mean with that? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I minimize a lot. <laughs> like my my child, like he only likes to wear sweatpants. And I'm just like, cool. Like, okay. I but I like know. Every, I mean, I, like you said, every kid is so different. And, you know, my son went through a whole phase where he, he would not wear anything besides sweatpants. And he just, now it's been like two years and now he's all of a sudden wearing pants and nothing changed. It just, one day he woke up and wanted to wear pants. Now my daughter who's six, she refuses to wear anything without a skirt. Like, you know, like it's just part of their personality. I feel like sometimes, and not necessarily some sort of a diagnosis. So I, I'm, I think I kind of like err on the same side of you, which is like kind of like minimalizing everything. I don't know if that's good or bad, but you know. yeah, for sure. I, I, I think it's important for the parents that need help to to be able to get it somewhere. Um, but I like, so I don't want to minimize if someone's really struggling with something. For sure, I work in a school and I work in private practice. And at school, there's so many kids that have the sensory issues of being in the lunchroom because it's so loud. And, and, and then just helping, I guess, accommodate for that in some yeah. way. But I wouldn't jump and say like, you should get assessed for, for ADHD or anything like that, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. So again, minimizing, but, but yeah. So let's see, there's a lot of questions about 
we kind of touched on this, the natural treatments. Do natural treatments work? For example, fish oil, avoiding dyes, things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Avoiding dyes is one I hear of quite often from parents. I am like, so if a parent comes forward and says like, we have, I think I talked to you about this a little bit, avoiding dyes, avoiding dairy and gluten and using oils. I I mean, if it works for their family and they feel like it's helping, then that's great. But I, the scientific evidence behind it, there's not a lot. A lot of parents who have kids diagnosed with ADHD really like, hold back on the sugar, which I mean, every I think every kid could benefit from that too. And so, I mean, there's not a lot of research showing those natural side of things working. However, and before I was a parent, I'd probably be like, no, what are you thinking? Like, it's not going to work. But as a parent, I know that those, if we can cut out some of that and you do see improvements and that is really helpful, but the research behind it isn't super strong. Yeah. 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 Let's see. This is a good one. Best advice to build self-esteem in children that have ADHD. Yeah. And I think I mentioned before when I was like, if my son got diagnosed with ADHD, is there's pros and cons to it. And one thing is when kids are diagnosed with ADHD, sometimes they feel like something's wrong with them or what, what's, you know, what's wrong with me that my brain is like this and not someone else's. And, and, and that's where <laughs> I don't want to say to them, well, it's one in four now, but you know, it's, it's very common, but the, self-esteem issue does come with it, especially in kids who may be high performing or not understanding the the background of it or why they have that. So I think what like with any child, I was just reading this intervention this morning that said to walk, where did I hear this? They were like, walk around your child. Oh, it was in this ADHD training with another psychologist. She was like, walk around your child for two minutes, set a timer and just give them positives for two minutes, which I felt like, well, that's kind of insincere to like set a timer and then just spew off these positives, but we have to help them build their self-esteem somehow. So maybe that way isn't like the greatest example, but how can we really promote the positive things? And, and that's the thing about ADHD too. There is a lot of negativity that comes with it, but if we think about kids with ADHD or professionals or I mean, like Michael Phelps, he had ADHD and his, I think it was his third grade teacher said, you'll never be anything. And then he put all of his energy into swimming. And then like, look how amazing that is. Having an overactive brain a lot of the times is actually a really positive thing. So just focusing on obviously the positive aspects of it. One thing I didn't talk about earlier that I'm just going to jump back to real quick is I always tell parents and I often get told like it's a silly thing to say, but if you take 10 minutes of your day for two weeks, just 10 minutes and say, spend 10 minutes with each child, and maybe it's a lot, I know you have multiple children, but um, no distractions, no phones, no TVs, no other people, just one-on-one with that child and do what they want you to do with them. So maybe it's building Lego or playing blocks or my, my one son, he likes to wrestle, which I hate, but, but I do it with him to like, that's what he wants for his 10 minutes. That increases their like self-esteem. And maybe I'm yeah. talking for younger kids, but even for older kids, like, I mean, don't focus on the screens or TikTok or video games, but something you can do with them that will build their self-esteem. It connects you as in your relationship. And you'll also see behavioral changes in them because just that connection piece is so huge for kids. Well, for any kid, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that so many different times. And I remember, and I'll say this just because I feel like it might help those that do have multiple kids. I was 
I tried to do that just here and there. And it was so incredibly overwhelming because it is, I mean, it's impossible for us with four kids and the fact that one of us is usually gone. So it, it might be easier if you do have, you know, two partners and you are able to, you know, you both have nights off before bedtime and it might be easier to do that, which is great. But yeah, I mean, it it has so many significant benefits, you know, and like you said, not just for children that are struggling with ADHD, but just for all kids. But if you're, you know, feeling overwhelmed by that and like, oh my gosh, there's no way I could possibly do this. I get it. What we are trying to do still Mm -hmm. haven't succeeded, but (laughs) we're trying is just put onto your calendar, you know, this block of time. And we try to do a little bit of a longer period of time. So, you know, 20, 30 minutes and it's like a mommy date or a daddy date. And we spend just that time with that child. And I think the key to it, like you said, is for them to be able to pick the activity because typically, you know, there are many times where I'll like run to the store and then it will be a special treat for like one child to come with me and I'll say, Oh, this is our special time, but it's not doing something they want to do, you know? So, and just, so I I only have to put, so there's four dates on the calendar for 20 to 30 minutes at a time for the month. And, you know, as much as I'd love to do it more, it's Mm -hmm. sometimes impossible, but even that 20 to 30 minutes, they look forward to that all month. Oh, I get my own special time. I can do whatever I want. That is nice. For sure. I'm a single parent. So I have, it's, I guess, more important for me at times to take that time because it's always just me and them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I, when I had first read it, I was like, there's no way, or when we first talked about it. And then the more and more I tried and then just seeing the changes in behavior was incredible. But when I often say it to parents and I say it to teachers as well, when they need interventions in the classroom, just connect with that kid for 10 minutes, you know, and it's always like, well, we have these lessons. We need to get this done. But that time is, it is important. So however you can find one-on-one time, I think whether it's five minutes or just setting aside the, the important part is without distractions, right? Exactly. Because we yeah. always have our phone in our hands. There's always a TV playing in the background. There's always other people around. So so I think that's just the most important part. And I know it can sound unrealistic for sure. What recommendations do you have when a school thinks a child has ADHD, but a medical evaluation and the pediatrician both do not agree with those findings? Interesting. Okay. So I think it's important. So if the teacher is bringing up concerns, having obviously like the the vice principal or the learning coordinator or whoever else you can have in, in those meetings, I think that I was just thinking it's usually often the other way <laughs> around, but a lot of times behaviors in school do look like ADHD, right? So, so we, we went through all of those, like the not able to pay attention or blurting out behaviors, emotional control, all of that looks like it. So if that's kind of what they're dealing with, what can what can we do in school if it didn't come back in the other areas to help support them? So maybe there needs to be a behavioral intervention put into place. The question was, what do we say to them? Is that what it was? What like what would your recommend recommendations be? Like what what should their next step be? If I mean, really, it could be you know even if it was the other way around. Just when when certain you know experts that are saying you know your kid does or does not have this, like what should mm-hmm. their next steps be? If not everybody is in agreement. Yeah, that's interesting because so working in a school, our our teachers are told like you can never really suggest that diagnosis because that's it's 
that's also a controversial place to, to place to go. But obviously, if they're seeing something at school and they're not seeing it on their formal assessment, then the parents, I would suggest, should make a meeting with with other people involved in the school. So not just the teacher themselves, but having kind of a team representing how they can support the child in the school since they're not seeing it in other places. Because that's really important too. Sometimes I see parents like wanting school to handle things and sometimes school wanting parents to handle things. And we really just, we all need to work together to help support them wherever they're having challenges. And that's so easy for me to say, and I know harder to get those supports in that, but advocate, that's the best thing you can do. Advocate for your child and what what they need and what you can get for them as far as supports go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess when I'm reading, when I'm reading this over and it says medical evaluation and the pediatrician. So I'm not sure what she means by med eval and like who did the med eval. I'm not, you know, I'm like not quite understanding, but I mean, it doesn't sound like they went straight to, you know, seeing a psychologist or, you know, somebody that specializes, you know, in the, I'm obviously pediatricians see this all the time, but I'm just saying like, obviously getting to somebody else to kind of weigh in, of course, is, is definitely helpful um, as well. Yeah. As well. Yeah. But the most important thing to remember, like I talked about earlier, is across environments, right? We can, we don't have yeah. ADHD just at home and we don't have it just at school. It is like a, a neurological condition where we have it everywhere. We don't right. present one way or the other. So if we're presenting at just one, like at just in at one school. environment, yeah. I really think then we need to put some things in place to help support that child in that in environment. School. Yeah, Because at home, if they're they're not having the same concerns, then it's an environmental issue more so than a diagnosis. Right, itself. right, right, right. Super important. Okay. Okay. Let's end with this question. So say a parent, you know, has just received the diagnosis for their child of ADHD. They've gone through significant, you know, testing and eval just to try and narrow down what the condition is. And it is ADHD. What are some tools that you would give to this parent to try with their child at home? Like just some simple things that might help them, you know, whether it's to stay on task or, you know, like what are just some, some simple things that they can do? Yeah. So, I mean, talking at, like as a whole is really hard. There's yeah. so many different way, ways you can approach it, but no, like obviously we know for all kids, structure, routine, consistency are the most important, but that's the, like so, so, so important for kids with ADHD. So how can we structure the time? Um, I always give the example of, you know, when you call it your kid and you're like, get your socks, backpack, lunch kit, and your water bottle. And then they come back with like a pair of shoes and you're like, what? Like I just told you to get all those things. Like we really have to break everything down for them. So how can we change some of those things at home? Right? Like, so we have visual schedules, routines to, to make sure they know where, what they need to be doing, because often you'll expect them to be doing homework in their room and they're playing video games because the more preferred task is obviously what they want to do. So breaking down some of those just like scheduling, consistency, routine kind of stuff, helping with executive functioning, right? So how can we help them maybe manage their emotions, regulate their behavior, planning, organizing, using schedules is so important, especially as the kids get older, like planners. We don't use planners anymore, right? We're using our phones, but like for them to be able to write down when things are due or what they need to bring to school, those are important tools that we still still need to be teaching kids, especially with ADHD. So, so breaking all that down, maybe parents could 
use some support as in training or meeting with a psychologist to be given more tools as to help them in home. And then also obviously meeting with the school when a diagnosis is given, how is the teacher going to help support that? How is the school going to provide, maybe they need some accommodations or supports to help them be able to learn the best they can. So it's just like a really, it's a, it's a really hard question to answer because there's so many different ways that you could go about it. But obviously because ADHD can present so many different ways, what is the most important area and task that they, they could focus on to help their child? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. So anything else you want to add? Oh, that, that was one thing, like I said, I could talk about this forever, but one thing that we're really starting to see increases in, in schools, especially after COVID is social emotional learning and how important that is. And that's another area, like a huge area for kids who are, just going off that last question, diagnosed with ADHD, but how can we help with their social skills, teaching them to have conversation skills, waiting turns, not interrupting? How do we build friendships? All of those things are things we have to learn. Some kids aren't just born <laughs> knowing how to do those things. Mm-hmm. So if we're able to teach them more in schools, and I know in like in the US, they're starting to make more time for that in a lot yeah. of areas. That's really great. And maybe, maybe one day we would see I don't know, maybe a decrease in all of these challenges if we're able to teach them more and spend more time focusing on it. Yeah. You know, I had, I don't remember this. So my oldest, she's second grade and then I have a kindergartner and the rest of them are younger. So I don't remember this before COVID, but in the past year, I have received these handouts. I believe last spring I did too. Handouts of, oh, we've introduced this new topic at our school of mindfulness and the kids are getting 30 minutes of this or what have you. I forget. I think it's 30 minutes of mindfulness taught either like once or twice a week. And so my daughter was like, oh yeah, we were learning how to like, you know, meditate. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. Like they're giving them those tools and this is a totally new way. And I think COVID honestly was, was it kind of pushed this topic, which I, I do think I still stand by. I know it was really tough and we are you know still battling through all these things, but there are good things that came of it. And things like this are just an example where it's, you know, I don't know that, you know, mindfulness would have been introduced to the school had COVID not happened and kids were having a hard time dealing with everything related to it. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not sure if your school does that, you could email, you know, the principal or teacher, you know, what have you and say, hey, is this, you know, on the docket for for our kids to be learning in our school? Or, you know, is there any plan to kind of give the the kids these resources that they do need developmentally to tackle everyday obstacles and things like that? Yeah. And like one thing as parents, because I don't want to always like say put it on the parents, but a lot of parents don't know how to do those things either. So, you know, we didn't learn that when we were growing up in school and maybe a lot of people didn't learn it in home either. So for them to be able to have access to that in the school is really important. And we know that kids struggle to learn academically if they're not feeling good social, like their social emotional well-being, right? So so we have to spend time on that or or the academic side of things won't matter. I follow a program here called Second Step. It's a social skills program that's evidence-based and teach it's it's geared towards teachers, but it actually follows a script, which I know sometimes can be like insincere, but the teachers are able to teach all of these social emotional tools in class 
that are evidence-based. And a lot of schools are picking this up, which is really cool. That is really cool. Yeah. So like I I second what you say, like email the principal. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Be one of those nagging parents. But it is so important because obviously it benefits everyone if they're able to learn those skills. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, I mean, there's like a book on everything these days, but (laughs) yeah. You know, they do have like these books that you can just grab on Amazon, you know, that are, that are about mindfulness that you could even just read, like every night we read a book. So this book that you could read to your kids could be about mindfulness and you could do it together. Like both the parent and the child could benefit from it, you know? Yes. Emotional regulation is a huge part of ADHD and just in our lives in general. And the younger you talk to kids about emotions really helps with that. So my favorite book for, for young kids, and I read it even up to sixth grade here is Color Monster. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a pop-up version of it and it's so cute. So every color is a different emotion. And then it just is a really good way for parents to talk through the emotions with their kids because I don't know. I feel like in our, our generation, a lot of people didn't do that. And and then sitting down with your kids, oh, you're like, yeah. well, how do I talk to them about being sad? Well, this color monster, it's just like, I feel sad. It's like the rain. Blah, blah. It's like a really cute book. But then it's like, well, what are some times when you feel sad? Like just opening that door to to being able to express emotion is so helpful. And some of that, I'm not going to say like prevents, (laughs) prevents those diagnoses, but it is such a huge part being able to be open and talking about emotions and how to regulate them and regulating them. Obviously mindfulness is a huge, like can be a great tool for that as well. So just all of these, (laughs) these things, all this homework to do, you know, (laughs) we have, Yeah, no, that it is so important. And I feel like, you know, I'm sure there are some, if not many of us that might have, you know, grown up thinking, oh, you know, I can't get angry because I have to be happy all the time, or I have to be, you know, like, you know, especially like around other people, I don't want to show that I'm sad or mad or, you know, what have you. And you kind of just like hide those feelings, but more or less kind of making it normal to have all these different feelings and working through them is, is going to be really beneficial for them in the long run, you know, especially as they get older. 64% of kids with ADHD have a comorbid emotional or behavioral disorder. So that emotional regulation and being able to find those tools is such a such an important part of that. And and I just want to say one more thing cuz I know we, we're ending but the overdiagnosis of ADHD I do believe is very real. There is an underdiagnosis in girls though cuz it does look very different. So I don't want to forget about that side of things just as an ending note, I guess, because I don't want everyone to be mad at me (laughs) during the podcast, but yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So I always end with asking the guest two questions. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice for moms, what would it be? And it doesn't have to be about the topic today. It can be about anything. Oh gosh, that's so hard. I feel like I'm learning every day as a mom. I guess I would go back to that that distraction-free time with your kid. And I know, like I'm not saying the 10 minutes because I know that's unreasonable, but just even if you can connect with them somehow, maybe before bedtime, some kind of uninterrupted time where you're just able to have a conversation or do something that they enjoy. I think that's so important because our schedules are all so busy, right? When you sit down and actually think about how much in un- uninterrupted time you have with your kid is it's well for me it's very little so I would, yeah and then the second question is if you could make one meal for your family and they <laughs> both of your children would eat it that's relatively quick and easy what would it be 
Oh, that's hard. My kids are such picky eaters. Oh my gosh. I would probably go with something. Oh, super simple, I guess. Like I would just do, I'm so boring, like spaghetti and meatballs, something. (laughs) But see, this is because my kids are, yeah. You can say anything. I've had people on here say McDonald's. I mean, yes, yes, yes. It's like (laughs) whatever, you know, like that meal that pops into your head. That's like, okay, I have, you know, like Mondays are super busy for us. So, you know, what meal is everybody going to eat that I can just. Oh, that one's so easy to make. Right. So it's just like, yeah, yeah. Throw that on the table and they both eat it and neither of them eat it right now. So that's why I think my brain goes there. I know it's, it's, it's tough. They go through so many different, I mean, and having four kids, I've really seen it like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Like it's like our baby was eating everything under the sun and now she's in this phase where she won't eat anything. And I'm like, wait a second. I don't understand. I've given you all kinds of different things. And all of a sudden you're not eating anything. Like, you know, so it's, it just goes, they just go through phases and then they come back around and then they go through it again. And I don't know. I just continue to offer everything and and see where it goes. <laughs> so yeah, that's the thing uh, with my kids. Yeah. So thank you so much, Ashley, for taking the time out of your day. I know obviously you're very busy and I am so appreciative of you taking the time to talk with us about this topic today. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.